This morning didn't get a study sheet. Uh, the mes- this morning's message is specifically uh, for the younger crowd. Can, can I give these to you? And if you came in and you don't have one, uh, grab one from Kathy. And if she runs out, I think there's some more in the back. Yeah, if, if anybody, yeah, raise your hand if you're, especially, yeah. <laughs> you can be young or, or less so, Willie. <clears throat> I am uh, reading a book right now, and the author is Congressman Dan Crenshaw. The book is called Fortitude. It's, it's a little bit of a biography. He's got quite a life story, and it's also really an exhortation spoken to in the cultural, political moment that uh, American citizens need to live life with uh, fortitude, less of a complaining, expect an attitude on others, but an attitude of fortitude for themselves. Crenshaw has an impressive personal resume. By the way, do you guys know who I'm talking about? Do you know who Dan Crenshaw is? Raise of hands. About half. Okay. He's fairly well known. So he was not only a Navy SEAL, he was a lieutenant commander in that specialized group. He served both in Iraq and Afghanistan. He had an IED explode. He said five feet from him, almost killed him, of course. He lost his right eye, almost lost his left eye. He survived, he filled out his Navy commitment and retired from the Navy. And then he went home to Texas, where in 2019, he ran in a really crowded Republican primary race for a Texas 2nd Congressional District, and he won, then he won the general election, and he's been serving in Congress for Texas since. He gained notoriety, and and this may be the reason many people are even aware of him. One, he strikes a certain figure when you see him because he wears a black patch over his missing right eye. So if you've seen any image of him, it's almost certainly that one. Well, because of that, I don't know how many years ago this was, Saturday Night Live did a one-eyed joke at his expense. And then the following week, they heard about it. And I'm not sure from who, but the following week, they had him on their show. And Pete Davidson, the comedian who made the one-eyed joke, apologized to him. And Crenshaw graciously, humorously accepted it. And so he had a lot of national exposure because of a joke originally made at his expense. Uh, He's 39 years old, still a young man. Most of us would say still a young man, yeah. Uh, But he has already, and he is, living his dream. So, you know, to live your dream, you have to have a dream. Uh, to, to live life looking forward, you have to have an end to which you think your life should go. And listen, listen to the way, very brief, I'm just going to read two short excerpts from his book. Listen to the two, in the moment, I'm sure, no concept that, from the people that interacted with Dan Crenshaw, no concept that the future of his life was being shaped by these little bits of things that happened along the way. So listen to this. He says, uh, my dad gave me a copy of Dick Marchenko's first book, Rogue Warrior. Read this, he said. Sure, whatever, I said. I was only 13. Kids, he's only 13. And therefore incapable of showing excitement to a parent. (laughs) But he said, secretly, I was psyched. Rogue Warrior, a gritty, rough-hewn, half-true book series written by the founder of SEAL Team 6, 
is not fine literature, but it might as well have been Hemingway and Shakespeare combined for a kid seeking adventure and glory. I hadn't just found an entertaining book about the SEAL teams, and here's the thing, I had found my purpose. He's 13 years old, his dad gave him a book, you know, you give a book to someone, you don't know where it's going to go, and because his dad gave him a book at 13, he said, I found my purpose in life. At that young age, I decided I was going to become a Navy SEAL. I was going to join the teams and relish in the risk-taking bravado that made these guys superhuman. Later, but still while a teenager, he says this. As a teenager, I spent my summers working on a ranch just outside San Antonio. The pay was lousy, that's my word, not his, but my dad said it would build character. The rancher I worked for was a family friend named Steve. Becoming a rancher in his later years, he was a collegiate football player, a U.S. Air Force Academy graduate, and in time a U.S. Air Force colonel. He owned his own consultancy firm. He worked as an engineer. He held multiple advanced degrees. This was a man who had seen and done it all, and as a boy, I took him seriously. One day, we had a simple conversation I'll never forget. Now, does Steve, would Steve, the guy having this, would he have forgotten this conversation? Hard to say. <clears throat> Steve, he turned and fixed his gaze on me. Dan, you have to figure out who you want to be in this world. It's a question we have to answer. Who we want to be. Do you know who you want to be? I looked a little confused and he could tell. I don't mean what you want to do when you grow up. I mean who you want to be. I thought about that conversation for years afterward. When we ask ourselves who we want to be, we are defining the character traits that we aspire to. So, of course, in doing that as well, you're really determining not only what kind of a person you're going to be short-term, but long-term. You're defining the end of your journey. You're defining the person you intend to be, not only the things you intend to do. Dan Crenshaw had goals in mind for who and what he wanted to become from an early age. And I think sometimes we underestimate the degree to which our children may be already developing in their mind's eye who their future self is going to be, not just what they're going to do, but what kind of a person they'll be. Crenshaw's dad gave him a book, and that was sort of the beginning of this. And I'm sure there's others in here who, like me, as a fourth and fifth grader reading biographies in primary grade school, I had already determined some of the things that would shape the rest of my life. And no one else knew it except me from the books I was given at school to read. So young folks are being shaped all around us, and they don't always grasp the enormity of some of the decisions they're making in the moment, the things they're latching onto, nor do the adults and the folks in their life often have a sense of where this little pebble dropped in the, the scheme of their minds and thinking will one day lead. And we don't know these things, but to be aware of this, this is happening is a big deal. It was happening in Crenshaw's life. It was determining the end to which all of his life would one day lead. He knew the end to which everything else in life must conform. By the way, you know, if you read anybody's take, and there's multiple stories from authors who've been Navy SEALs, when you read uh, less than one in five who enter Bud's training graduate. So it's, a, it's an incredibly difficult process. And so if you don't have this 
high sense of urgency and commitment. And that, that's really my goal. That's the thing that I won't, I'll do anything else except fail at this. It takes that kind of commitment. And that's what Crenshaw had. But if we ask ourselves, so you could, you could uh, ask the question multiple ways. You could say, what am I living for? That'd be a way to say it. What's worth dying for? What's worth giving my all for? That'd be another way of saying it. But at the end of the day, what we're talking about this morning is from our perception, from our thoughts, from our philosophy, from whatever influences that come into our life, what is the end to which any of us would say we are living? What is the goal that's guiding our decisions? So we have one. It may not be well articulated. Even if we say, I don't have one, and I'm just living life day by day, well, you'd say my goal is to live is simply to live one day at a time. That'd be a goal. I think it's inadequate, hor horrifically inadequate, but that could be your goal. So all of us are living with some kind of goal, some kind of end in mind. And so the suggestion this morning is this. Begin at the end. So what do you perceive as your end? You take that as your starting point because everything is moving towards that end. Spoken well, articulated well or not, everything in life is going towards some end. And there are some big rock ends that God tells us about that we would uh, be ignorant of or not take into account um, to, to our harm, to be sure. Ask it this way. This is why I hope you have a study sheet, by the way. Because I hope you think through this. There's lots of places you can fill some things out there. So this is, think of this as an exercise this morning. Who am I? Where am I at? Where am I going? What are my ends? What are my goals in life? Think of it this way. If on the last day of our life on earth, we could look back on all we've done and been, what would represent success as to who we had become? So not necessarily what we're doing or where we're living, but who we had become, what kind of a person we had become. Last day of our life, I can look back, what's success? And also what's failure? I look back on my life and I say, I don't like who I became. I don't like who I am. I don't like who I lived out this lifetime with as this kind of a person. What would represent success and what would be failure? If we begin at the end, then we're going to set our course for the thing that we think, at least today, matters. So what's the end to which we're going? We're going to look at some scripture. We're going to talk about some predictable ends for each of us. And with those in mind, I want to help us think about who we are and who we're becoming. And your study sheet, again, has a number of places for you to think about this for yourself and write them out. This isn't for anyone's uh, eyes or ears necessarily, but your own. Uh, who God means us to be and what God means us to be about. And again, this is why specifically, thinking of Crenshaw's, uh, the formation of his life being as a 13-year-old, if you're a young child, if you're old enough to listen to the message or think about this, you got all of life before you, as far as we know. Where are you heading? What kind of a person are you going to be? So I want to begin at the end. Um, you know, in life, sometimes you feel like I'm walking through life, it's a dark corridor, and I'm feeling my way along. I, I don't, there's not a lot I'm aware of. There's not a lot I know. Life can be confusing. I've been reading through Ecclesiastes lately, reading through it personally, reading a commentary, uh, talking through it with a son-in-law. 
It's a Bible study. And here, it's an interesting thing about this book. Uh, if you read through Ecclesiastes for the first time, most people are confused. Most people are confused. So here's this 12-chapter piece of wisdom literature that's supposed to tell us how to live wisely. And we read it and we're like, I don't know what I'm supposed to take away from this. I'm not sure what he's trying to tell me. So for instance, is everything in this life really vain, empty, and meaningless? Because he says that. Is everything really meaningless? And, and what does that futility mean? What does it encompass? What does it look like? Are the pleasures of life, that is what I can eat, taste, uh, family time around the table, is that the highest good I can aspire to? Is that it? Is that as good as it gets? How about, is life as random as it appears to be at times? That sometimes what the evil should get, the righteous get. Sometimes what the righteous should get, the evil get. And it sounds like a pretty topsy-turvy world. So I read through this bit of wisdom literature and I say, I'm not sure which end is up until I get to the end. And at the end, I get a lens that gives perspective to everything else. And guys, here's the thing. Even if you say, Mike, I've read the end and I still don't get it. That's okay. But the end gives us this sense of where everything else is going. So if I have that in mind, and that's the lens by which I interpret the rest of the book, then at least I know some things. I know that life is more than the meal I ate. Life is more than the frustrations I get. Life is more than the confusion I can't figure out. There is an end to all this. There is an end to which everything is leading. And so that end should inform our life. God and Solomon want us to look around at this beautiful yet brutal, blessed and yet vacuous, sometimes predictable, more oftentimes not apparently random world, and struggle for meaning and purpose behind it all. And we get to that end only at the end of the book. Think of it like a chick in, a, in an eggshell. You know, the chick has to work, sort of work at getting out of that eggshell. It's frustrating. They've got to take a break and then they come at it again. That's kind of the thought here. I'm working through the Ecclesiastes and I'm trying to get life figured out and I get to the end of the book and Solomon sums it all up for us. This is Ecclesiastes 12, last two verses of the book, 13 and 14. So guys, as we read this, this is, this is your end. Okay? This is your end. There's no ambiguity about this. This is your end. The end of the matter, all has been heard, Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. What's the end to which your life is meant to go? Fear God and keep His commands because this is the whole duty of man. And for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's your end. At the end of every human life, be it long or short, and I'll qualify this just a little bit for some in, in a minute, is to die and stand before your maker and give an account for what you did and who you became. Your end is to die and to stand before your maker and to give an account. That's the end to which every life on planet Earth is moving. No one accepted. That's where everybody's going. Now I say no one accepted. Uh, Many of you, you're looking for and you're praying for the rapture. And you say, Mike, I'm not going to die. I'm good. I'm in your number. If that's us, hallelujah. 
But let's just set that aside and just say we don't know that that's us. So if that's not us, we know this is us. We're going to live, we're going to die, and we're going to give an account for our life to the one who made us. That's your end. That's the end to which every life on planet Earth is going. I want to, uh, by the way, uh, if this is a little depressing on the front end, I hope it gets better. I don't know if it, if it will. So I want to start, we'll, we'll start with some facts and then uh, get to some applications. So, you know, guys, we, we live in a time that we are so blessed materially. We, we, life is, I'm sorry, however hard your life is, it's easier for an American in this time than any other time in the world, any other place on the globe, okay? So we're not the exception. So we live in a time and a place in which life is about as easy as it can get on planet Earth. And it's, and it's still hard, right? And it's still hard. And we've got to have this sense of uh, what's the reality that informs our life because I think we can be misled by the comforts that are typical for most of us. So, so this is setting the foundation. We'll look at some texts, other texts, and then we'll apply from there. So you remember back in Genesis 2, God told Adam in the garden, perfection, right? He says, Adam, here's the deal. You're my man. Do anything you want, wherever you want. Eat whatever you want. The garden is yours. And later you'll get used to this place. Then you're going to go out to the rest of the planet and you're going to make it look like this garden. It'll be grand. One prohibition, don't eat from that tree. If you eat, you'll die. So what happens, of course, in short order, Eve eats, Adam eats. Now we know they don't physically die in the moment, right? If we say death today, we're usually thinking about physical death. They didn't die physically in the moment, but they did die Remember, biblically, death is separation. They're now separated from the God who made them by their own sin. And they know it. They flee. They know I'm naked. I'm not doing what I should be. So they die spiritually in the moment. But what happens later? So you've got to get to Genesis 5. And guys, the point is made over and over and over again. So you get to Genesis 5. This is Genesis 5, verses 4 through 31. I'll just read Two, the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. And this is the phrase, and he died. And he died. And Genesis 5 is 10 generations in a row. And after each patriarch's name, the same recurring phrase comes up, and he died. Guys, it doesn't matter if you say they lived to be almost a thousand years old. You know what they did? They died. They died. Every one of them. You know what you start realizing? They all died. We're going to die. They died. I'm going to die. <laughs> psalm 90, verse 10. Psalm 90 is Moses' psalm. It's, it's one of my absolute favorites. It's so profound and so poignant. But, you know, compared to Adam or those guys before the flood... He lives a mere 120 years, right? A mere 120 years. But what does he say about life in its end? He said the years of our life are 70. You know, that's all, almost modern average lifespan in the States. I think it's maybe 77 or 78 for women, 76 or so for men. Uh, years of our life are 70 or by reason of strength, maybe even 80. Yet their span is toil and trouble. He describes life on the earth. Moses is a blessed man. He describes it as toil and trouble. And then he says, they're soon gone and we fly away. We fly away sounds poetic, doesn't it? What does he mean? We die. We die. And Romans 5.12, last on this theme, 
Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. You know, you read Isaiah and we're like grass. We, we spring up, we have a short life, and we die. We die. Guys, everybody on the earth is going to die. Rapture aside, Enoch aside, Elijah aside, a few exceptions aside. Everybody on earth is going to die. We have the same end in mind. On this physical life, we all die. Now, not only do we die, but what happens to the planet you and I call home, the planet on which all of your life is being lived out? You know what happens to it? It dies. Well done. You guys, we're sharing the thoughts. It's just like the planet dies. Now, I'll qualify this just slightly in case you've read or heard other things. Depending on how you translate, this is a short Bible study again, translate some of the wording in 2 Peter 3, your understanding of how this earth uh, is transformed, it varies. I'm going to read from the NASB because I think it's a better translation here than the ESV. But however you frame it, so whoever you talk to, doesn't matter uh, how they frame this, the earth that we live on will be no more. This earth, this planet as it is, does not survive. Now we can say the earth like we ourselves will be born again. We will say there's, there's continuity between this earth as it is and the new earth that's part of the new heaven and new earth in Revelation. We can say that too. All that. So you, you're going to have a resurrection body, right? And there will be continuity with that resurrection body to this one. And guys, there will be continuity with the resurrection body in the future with saints Whose, whose present body parts are dust and minerals in the ground. There will be continuity still. But it won't be the same. It will be transformed. It will be a new version. It will be glorified. So listen to what Peter says. Peter says this, 2 Peter 3, verses 7 and 10. By his word, God's word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Verse 10 but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now it doesn't say there will be no earth in the future, but the earth as it is dies. So, so think of this. If my goals for life if the ends to which I am living and breathing and eating and interacting, if they don't rise above this planet, they're meaningless in eternity. You know what I'm saying? If, if everything you and I aspire to can be tied to this planet, you're a loser in the game of life because this planet goes the way of all the earth. It dies. So if we don't have a set of goals and an end in mind, that goes further, that transcends the life of this planet, our goals and our ends are inadequate. They don't reflect ultimate reality. Because this world, as we know it, as we live on it, it dies just like we do. What happens after we die? Now I'm going to split this in two. Now Solomon said, so we're going to die, and then we are going to give an account. We're going to answer to God our maker. We're going to give an account of our life. So the New Testament breaks us down into two different paths. And you can probably guess on what that's predicated on. So is Christ my Savior? That's one path. Christ is not my Savior. That's another path. 
So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus is your Savior, these first verses do not apply to you. Okay? They do not apply to you. So here they are. Romans 14, 12. So I die. Okay? So I'm going to die. And I'm going to give an account. Paul says in Romans 14, 12, So then each one of us, these are believers, these are church members, they, they're in the body of Christ, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul says, hey, just like Solomon, you're going to give an account. 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5 both have the same setting in mind. And just briefly, we try to make this clear every time we talk about uh, judgment for a Christian. The, the sins of a Christian, past, present, and future, all those sins have already been covered by the blood of Christ. Every sin you've committed past, every sin you're committing today, present, every sin you'll commit in the future is already covered by the blood of Christ. Amen. So that when we stand before Jesus, it's not for judgment on our sins. It's already happened. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's already happened. But it is this giving of an account so... Uh, when my girls were little, we'd give them an allowance and we'd give it on a certain day of the week. And so you know what I would do with them? I would sit the girls down. I've got the cash in hand. And I would review the previous week with them. And then I would say, hey, you know what? You guys did a great job this week or you did a great job. One or the other. And here's $5. Or I'd say to another, you know what? Um, I'm looking at some notes from your mom and you, you were missing it here on some places. Here's four dollars. You, you could get five, but you don't get five. You get four. It's a review. And the review is for reward. It's not a loss to them. It's always a gain. Okay? But it's for reward. So that's what, in 1 Corinthians 3, the thought is specifically about how we are investing in the church, the body of Christ. What our contribution looks like in what Jesus is doing in His church. And there Paul says... The giving of an account is going to look like a fire. So we would stand before Jesus and the works of your life, the things we have done for Christ, they're like a pile of stuff. And Jesus has a flamethrower and he puts it on it. Okay. And what lasts? So the things that were done for Christ, they're like they're gold, they're silver. They're things that the fire can't harm. The things that we didn't do for Christ, the motive was bad, the thing was bad, like my girl's allowance. Jesus says, there's no reward for that, okay? But here's what's left. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to reward you for this. So the believer is going to give an account, and it's an, it's an accounting that ends in reward from Christ. You see the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5.10. We all appear before the judgment, the bema, in the Greek, the bema seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. That's the thing. It's this reward. It's a judgment for reward. So the Christian dies like everybody else. He gives an accounting in a sense like everybody else. But his accounting is for reward. Now if Christ is not my Savior, I give a different kind of accounting. And it's not for reward. It's for punishment. And you see this in Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9 is, is actually leading into a thought about Jesus' resurrection, but it states a general truth. Hebrews 9.27 Just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. For the person who doesn't know Christ, they die, and they're going to give an account, and in that the, the fruit or the end of that giving an account is what kind of punishment they receive in eternity. And you see this in Revelation 20. 
verses 11 through 15. By the way, notice it says four times the dead, the dead, the dead, the dead. These are spiritually people that are cut off from life in Christ. Remember it always. Life as a quality is not mere existence. Life is to be in union with Christ and God who is life. So when we say they're dead, it's like, well, they're standing and all this stuff. Yeah, but they're, they don't have life in Christ. They don't have anything that qualitatively we can call life. Uh, the Apostle John says there's this great, big, white throne in heaven. And there's one seated on it. This be the Lord Jesus. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. Yet this great collection occurring at the end of earth age. He says, I saw the dead, great and small. Doesn't matter if you're a big, important dead person or a little unimportant dead person. The great and the small are there standing before the throne. Books are open. We would say these are books that reflect what they did in their life. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books. According, how are they judged? According to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The second death. When we talk about hell, this is actually what we're talking about. I hope you cringe as I do when I read these verses, by the way. So here's the person. They die, they're given an account, and it's for degrees of punishment. So guys, just like if you say... Uh, uh, my neighbor Joe was a, a moral person. He was ethical. He was honest. He treated his wife nice. He pet his dog. He took the trash out. Whatever it represents, he's a nice guy for you. And he dies and he goes to hell. And then you say, and you know, there's Hitler and he murdered all these people and he belongs in hell. And you say, well, it doesn't seem fair. They're both in hell. But here's the thing. It's degrees of punishment. And you get this. There's some language about this in the Gospels. Uh, more or fewer stripes, degrees of punishment. So they're all in hell, but some have a different degree of punishment that absolutely fits the crime, if you will, based on God versus that, the happy, happy uh, pagan who rejects Christ's offer of salvation and dies. They're in the same place, but their degree of punishment is not the same. So they're in the same place, the lake of fire, the second death. Okay, so we die, we give an account, and it's for reward or punishment. And then what? Uh, Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. You read the rest of Revelation 21 and 22, it speaks of, it gives some description of the new heaven and the new earth. You read as an exception in that passage, verse 8 in chapter 21, the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, the lake of fire that burns with, excuse me, the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, the second death. So, so you've had, you've both given account, reward, punishment, new heavens and new earth, lake of fire. So, friends, what's the end of our story? We die just like this world does. Things as they are, we as we are, the world as it is dies, it perishes. We stand before our Creator. We give an accounting of our life for reward or punishment. It's true for every one of us. We inhabit a new heaven, a new earth where Christ reigns, where death is no more, where there is joy and there are pleasures forever. 
And that ending is the beginning of your eternal experience. Is that cool? That end is this whole new beginning of eternity. Joys and pleasures. Psalm 16. Joys and pleasures forever. That's the beginning. The end is the beginning. Uh, or we join the rest of the spiritually dead in the second death, the lake of fire, under God's perfect judgment. When we consider the end of our own story, the end to which all our existence is leading, don't stop at death. Don't stop, I live and I die, because that's not the end. And that's not your end. It's no one's end. Our end is to stand before Christ to give an account for reward or judgment. And this is why I say to the kids, if you're a teenager, if you're a young adult, if sort of life is still sort of in the it's not jello yet stage, I'm making my mind up, it's so, so important to be aware that you're becoming something even as a child, even as a kid. And you know, how many of the adults in this room, I'm sure if we were speaking to someone who's 10 to 20 years old, would say, don't make the mistakes I made. That I lived life, I was short-sighted. I wasn't living with a goal or an end in mind that adequately informed the decisions I made. And guys, I'll tell you, I feel very blessed in the family I grew up in. We were Roman Catholic. I did not know the gospel for sure. Um, but my parents were moral and they were ethical and they were loving and there was a huge benefit to all that. But you know what else I've realized? I was the fool in Proverbs. I, I had, I'm part of a moral institution. My parents are moral. I don't, I'm not negating any of that. But guys, I was a moral idiot. I was a nice guy and people liked me and they thought I was successful. And I was a moral idiot. And the longer I've grown and I've looked back, I can see the depth of the loss of the fact that I didn't, I, I wasn't the wise one taking in God's instruction. I wasn't well informed. And I see the fruit of that in my life as an adult. And so that's why adults will often tell kids, you know, younger than us, don't make the same mistake. You have opportunities to make great choices, to become a great person in Christ. You have the opportunity, you know, don't spoil the opportunities God's giving you. So if you're young, Dan Crenshaw was 13, what kind of a person, kids, young adults, teenagers, what kind of a person would you say you are right now? What kind of a person are you today, right now? What kind of a person do you intend to become? If you listed out the character qualities that you aspire to as an adult, what are they? What do they look like? Or maybe you have a, a person in mind that you say, I want to look like that person when I grow up. How about this? What are the influences in your life that are shaping you for good or ill that you may not even be aware of? So the books you read, the podcasts you listen to, the video you stream, the friends you have, you know, those influences on your life. What kind of a person do they tend to lead you to be? Or towards what kind of end or goals do those influences that you're taking in all the time lead you? In what ways do you hope to serve others in the, in the church and in the world? And I say this, if you're just talking to somebody, even one of us today, and we say, what kind of person do you want to be? Or what do you want to do? We're usually thinking of vocation. That's fine. But, but if you're a Christian, you're called to serve the body of Christ. You're called to be a servant if you're a Christian. No exception. So, so if I'm thinking about my future and my goals and my ends, how do I see service in that? You know, how does, 
God is taking on Christ-like persona of a servant. What does that look like for me as I think about the church, as I have aspirations for? What will I give an account for? For how I served or didn't serve in the body of Christ. As the school year starts, and I know for some of the kids it already has, you know, you take in information, but all along the way you are being formed into a certain kind of person. You are becoming something today that you weren't yesterday and last week and last month. You're becoming something. You have a goal and an end in mind that's adequate to form the person you should become. Yeah, I, you know, another great example of this I love is uh, I, I do think sometimes we have expectations too high for kids and sometimes too low. And so kids, if you're 20 and below, I'm calling you a kid this morning. Sorry. So one of the examples is this. So when you read in 1 Samuel the story of this woman who can't have kids and she prays and God answers her prayer and she has this little boy and God says, she says to God, if you give me a boy, I'll give him back to you. And God gives her that little boy, Samuel. And do you remember on the front end of his service, Samuel's just a little guy. He's a little boy when mom takes him to Eli in the tabernacle and he starts serving. And do you remember? God's calling him at night. And he doesn't know that's God. In fact, it says God hadn't made himself known to Samuel yet. And he thinks Eli's calling him. So he keeps waking Eli up and bugging him. And Eli gets, he says, hey, Next time it happens, this is what you do. And so the next time, Samuel, Samuel, you remember what he says? He says, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. We don't have to be old to say to God, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Lord, I, what do you want to say to me? What do you want from me? How do I invest? What does it look like for me to be serving you? Samuel's just a little tight. That can apply to any of us today. Uh, ask your parents, teachers, friends what they see as your strengths and weaknesses so you can maximize your strengths and <laughs> minimize your weaknesses. You know, uh, Ecclesiastes 12, last two verses, they're the end for all of us, right? But you know, if you're a 20-something or a teenager, you know young men are immortal. Did you know that? Young men are immortal. Young men are invincible. We're willing to do anything. We'll defy death because we're idiots. <clears throat> yeah, we are idiots. So Solomon knows young men are idiots. And so he says this in chapter 11. So before he gets to the very end, he says this. He says, uh, uh, basically, he says, guys, here's the thing. You guys do whatever you want. Just go. Go do whatever you want. Whatever pleases you. Just just go do it, you know, just be a happy idiot. Just go do whatever you want on your weekend. You know, what? sow your wild oats, do whatever you want. And then he says, and remember this, uh, know that for all that, God will bring you into judgment. <laughs> do whatever you want. And then realize you'll give an account for what you did. So to the young specifically, you know, I'm invincible. I can do whatever I want. Well, maybe, maybe not. Um, for the adults, uh, what have we become? Who have we become? What have we become? Again, not vocation. What kind of a person have we become? Who have we become? There's, there's two, uh, think of this as two tracks for just a minute. There's kind of a chronological track where we say... Uh, we live, we die, we give an account, 
and then we join eternity in the new heavens and new earth or in the lake of fire. So there's this, there's this chronology that's part of who we are, our end and where we're going. But there's also this. Within your lifetime here, there's an end and there's a goal also. And you know what? It's God's preeminent, bar none. It's God's preeminent goal for every Christian today. Do you remember what it is? It's Romans 8, verse 29. That God's goal for every Christian is that they be conformed to the image of Christ. So we say in life, and this will be fulfilled in eternity, that you will be, God's at work in you, His great work in you in this time on the earth is that He's making you more and more fully like Christ. The, the real you doesn't get pushed out. This isn't... Uh, what is it when we make? We, this, you're not a clone, okay? You're not a clone. You're a snowflake in the good sense, not the bad sense. You're a snowflake, so you're an individual. And you don't melt, and you hold your shape, whatever that geometric shape is. You, you hold it. So, but, but what happens is the perfection that is Christ's humanity, it fills our humanity up so that the downsides, remember, because we're fallen, the downsides of who and what we are, they get replaced by the upside of Christ's perfection. So in this time, in this life, along this conveyor belt that's chronological, in this life, in your lifetime, God is recreating the life of Christ in you. That's what He's doing. So if we, we want to say one on this chronological time belt, here I am, I'm living, but I know I'm going to die, and I know I'm going to give an account, I know I have an eternal future. But while I'm on this earth, I also have a goal or an end in mind. It's God's goal. It's God's end in mind for me and for you as a believer. It's to become more fully formed in the likeness of Christ. That's what's going on in your life and mine. Whatever else is or isn't, that is the deal. That's the end. That's the goal to which we should be aspiring. Is Christ's life being formed in us by our conscious cooperation with the truth of God's word and the compelling push and presence of the Holy Spirit. Guys, I'm sorry, but are you reading your Bible? Are we reading our Bible? Are we taking in the truth of God's Word? Are we giving ourselves to God in times of prayer? And I don't mean you're praying for a hundred other people on a prayer list. I mean, are we just talking to the Lord? Are we sitting down saying, I'm struggling, or thank you so much, or whatever it would be? Are we giving ourselves to hearing from God and to speaking to God in prayer through fellowship? Uh, this came up uh, last week, and uh, uh, when friends and family, put yourself forward. You know, I've done a lot of funerals, and, and there's a, Ecclesiastes says it's better to be in the house of mourning than in the house of feasting, uh, because we take it to heart. Because the end comes into mind, my, my parent died, uh, my friend died, my spouse died, wow, that's reality. I can't get around it, and that's my end too. I just haven't got there yet. So funerals can be a really, really great place and a great time. Well, <clears throat> if you envision yourself, it's your funeral, not someone else's. It's your funeral. And your friends and family are laying your body in the ground. What are they thinking about you? And, and I don't say this as, as a, we're trying to win the approval of others. What is the testimony of your life that others who knew you well have in mind. They're laying you to rest, and so they're thinking about you. They're thinking about what kind of person you are. They're thinking about who you were in your life here on the earth. 
What are they thinking? What's the testimony we left behind? What our goals and our ends, they motivate us to be a certain kind of person. What is that? Because at our funeral, people are thinking about us, right? So uh, uh, my wife, Kathy, and I and some others of us were at a funeral just last week, a good friend, Connie Kearns. And uh, Connie was a delightful person. I don't think Kathy and I have seen Connie in a long time, but we used to be in the same church with her. Great, great gal. It's like everybody's sister. You know, if you knew her, she was, uh, she was kind of the same to everybody. But this is what I found interesting at her funeral. Her three children got up, and Hank Nelson, who gave the eulogy, got up. And you know what? They all described her in the same terms. The same general qualities is how they define Connie. And they said things like, she loved people, she was hospitable, she was an encourager, she prayed regularly for others. They're all saying the same thing because Connie was a certain kind of person. Connie knew who Connie was. And Connie had become a certain kind of person, what Connie was. Now listen to this. From her memorial card, she had one Bible verse and she had one sentence. I mean, as far as there was other information, but you know what I mean. There was one verse of the Bible and there was one sentence by her. This was her Bible verse, Romans 14 eight. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord. Now, for Connie, that means I'm living life now with the end in view. I belong to Christ. I'm going to give an account. I'm His. And so she lived with that in view. And listen to the sentence that was from Connie opposite Romans 14, 8. She said, Lord, help me to serve others, to look back on life with a happy, thankful heart. And if you knew her, she was a happy, thankful person. For having served you while here these few years. Isn't that good? See, she was consistent. The, the verse she applies to her life, the way she describes, when I get to the end of my road on earth, let, it, let this be who I become. I was happy. I was thankful. And I'd spent my life serving others. She had an end and a goal, goal in mind that was absolutely biblical. Do, what, what's, what is it that's informing our end, our goal? The end or the goal that we have in mind for ourselves. What's our end and goal? And not only that, um, what's the effect we're having on the lives of others around us? What's the effect? So we're being shaped and formed, right, by goals and aspirations and ends we have in mind. And those things, those goals and aspirations, they're coming from someplace, right? And sometimes it's from other people. So the people that are interacting with us, that we're hanging out with, what's the influence we have on them towards their end, the goals they have in life? What's the influence we're giving others? Who are we speaking to about noble goals and lofty priorities? Things adequate for someone's life. Remember, we're all spending our life. We're all spending our life. What are we spending it on? Who will gain a sense of God's upward call to self-sacrifice and honor that never fades because of the book we recommended, the questions we asked, the example we set, the encouragements and exhortations we shared, and the prayers we made? Who are we affecting towards those goals and ends that are adequate for life? You know, not just Christ-like conformity, that's the big rock in our lifetime, 
but for all that lies beyond this life as we know it. Dan Crenshaw's life pivoted on a single book and a simple question. And so not only are we being formed, but, but whose lives are we impacting in that same way? We don't always know when we are, by the way. So really the question there would be simply, are we investing in the lives of others? Not knowing what question or what book or what prayer or anything else will be significant. We don't know that in the moment. But are we making the investments anyway, trusting God that some of the seeds that we've sown, they're going to bring forth the fruit He intends? Uh, last two verses, Psalm 90, verse 12, Moses again, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. God, help me to see the brevity of life and what's next so that I can live wisely. And last, this is Philippians 3, 12 through 14. I leave you with this. Paul's talking about the whole notion of our future as believers is resurrection glory. It's, it's to be raised this glorious creature that's fit to be a member of the bride of Christ. That's the future. But Paul knows I'm still alive on planet earth. I'm still breathing here. So I haven't yet arrived. Resurrection hasn't happened. I'm not with Christ in glory yet. So this is what he says. I have not already obtained this. I'm not already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. I'm possessed by Christ. I'm possessing Christ in the ways that I can. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Listen to this word, straining. You've got to see a runner in a race when you read this verse. It's a 400 meter race and I've, I've run 300 meters. I'm not done. I forget the 300 meters I already ran. I've got 100 meters to go. He says, I forget what lies behind. I strain forward. Think of a runner coming to the finish line. To what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. See, that's a goal, that's an end worthy of your life and mine. Anything short of that is not, and it'll bring you up short, and it'll be a life of regrets, okay? Well, stand, if you would, and let's read together from 2 Peter 3. Worship team will be here.